Let me ask you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Judges. Judges is the seventh book of the Old Testament. I encourage you to find that book. We will reference chapters 1, 2, and 3 in a minute. Before we get there, we will turn to Leviticus and to Deuteronomy. Um, so just keep your Bible open and your fingers moist. The book of Judges is a very difficult book. It is uh, the story of Israel's decline. So if you're one of those who likes the happy news, read Facebook. But if you are interested in the real world, maybe you should read the Bible. Very few of the book of Judges, the verses in the book of Judges are identified as anybody's so-called life verse. Maybe you're familiar with that terminology. People say all the time, well, this is my life verse, and it's Proverbs, or it's Psalms, or it's John, or whatever. Those are wonderful, and I'm not mocking that per se. I am simply saying, ain't nobody chosen a verse out of Judges as their life verse for reasons that will become familiar. We started in this book a couple of weeks ago before we invited a couple of guests to come, and so this is going to feel like a second introduction because this is going to be an introduction to the book of Judges. You might say, well, we've already done that. Well, you would want to know that in the book of Judges, there are actually two introductions. Dies twice in the book of Judges, which is really hard to do, by the way, unless you're writing the story of the end of Joshua's life. So he dies in chapter 1, and he dies again in chapter 2, because there are actually two introductions in the book of Judges. What is interesting is there are also two conclusions, two conclusions, and the first introduction is answered by the last conclusion, and the second introduction is answered by the next-to-last conclusion. So that works well, doesn't it? So the first word is answered by the last word. And the second word is answered by the second to last word. Judges is actually like that. So if judges can have two introductions, I'm going to do the same. So I've actually written out in longhand my introduction. I think it's going to take 15 minutes for me to give you this introduction. Maybe longer. So here's my introduction. The Bible is a long book, and it contains many other books. We all know that. These various and many books represent the contributions of many authors writing in their own historical time and their own historical context. The time period that covers the book of Genesis until the dawn of the New Testament is, depending on how you count them in the Old Testament, somewhere between four to 6,000 years. But it's really just one book. 
And it's really just one story. It turns out it's my story, and it's your story, because we're part of this one big family, God's family. It turns out it's really not my story, though, or your story. It's really God's story, and it's the story of His Son, who He offers as our brother. We are a family, but we're not a family without some major problems. In fact, every day over the last 6,000 or so years, we've been less than what our Father wants, or less than He deserves. Entire branches of the family tree have disowned the rest of us and more importantly, have disowned their father. The father's response to those branches that have separated themselves and those who have not has been varied. Oftentimes, the father's response has been painful, even destructive, and go one better, even catastrophic, such is the case in the book of Judges. But most of the time, the father's response to these wayward branches and members of this family has been patient. God is more patient than he is anything. He is more merciful than he is anything. God is long-suffering. So over 6,000 or so years, there's been a little and a lot of both. The book of Judges describes the father's activity in what should have been one of the great times in our family's history. God raised up Moses and delivered them from the promised land or to the promised land. Moses hands the reins of leadership to Joshua, one of those two brave spies, he and Caleb, the only spies who voted in the affirmative to follow Moses and God into the promised land. Of course, they were denied by the majority vote. Beware the majority sometimes. But they're denied by the majority vote of the 10 other spies who said, yes, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but they got some really big dudes over there, and we cannot defeat them. Of course, they never were going to have to defeat them anyway. God was going to defeat them. But when you forget God, you think all you got is you. And that's a problem in this family. We have a tendency to forget God. So at this high water mark, Joshua is taking over the reins for Moses, and he's going to lead the people of God in this new season of promise and freedom and prosperity. They're going to live in houses they didn't build, and they're going to drink from wells they didn't dig, and they're going to harvest crops from fields they didn't plant. They're going to take another man's donkey and his oxen and his sheep, and they're going to live happily ever after, allegedly. But who can forget the great victory at Jericho? They come into town and walk around the city seven days in a row, the last day culminating in seven walks around the city. They blow trumpets and walls, walls estimated by the way by archaeologists at being 30 feet high and six feet thick. How does a wall 30 feet high and six feet six, six feet thick fall down? 
Well, men don't make those walls fall down. But this is not a story about men, primarily. So Joshua begins the conquest of Canaan, but such an endeavor takes time, and he didn't get the job finished before he dies. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua, and Joshua, if you will, hands over the reins. But there is no, there is no named leader. There is no named person in charge. By the way, if you read the book of Joshua, you, it's, it's, a, it's a telling book about the power of leadership. Joshua is about this prominent man who is encouraged by Moses to be strong and of good courage and go and do what God says to do. And the book of Joshua is this high water mark in the Old Testament of these people following the man of God who is truly a God-sent man. He's leading them, and they are, they are just trusting God. And the book of Judges is a dumpster fire of people saying, we don't have a leader, which is actually what happens when you don't have a leader. So the book of Judges is this entire litany of problems. These people are circling the spiritual drain. These are the people of God. These are the best people that God has on the planet, and they are deteriorating into chaos. And it happens again and again in the book of Judges. And God, as we're going to see, is going to He's going to deal with that, deal with them. He's going to provide for them, protect them, solve their problems, and he's going to do it in strange ways with strange people who are not perfect. Turns out none of these dudes are Joshua, but they are nonetheless God's people, men and women, by the way. By the way, the high water mark for the importance of women in the Old Testament may be the book of Judges. So Judges is the next chapter of the same book. It's the next verse of the same song. And it's the song we're still singing today. It's the song of God's promise to make a great people out of a non-people. It began, as you recall, back in Genesis chapter 12 when God called this man named Abram out of this place called Ur. That's a very unfortunate name. Chamber of Commerce can't do much with that. Ur. Ur. Where are you from? Ur. I don't know. So it begins with Abraham, and God moves him from Ur, ancient Mesopotamia, which is today the modern country of Iraq, to the land between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, or the Jordan River. God promised Abram that he would be a great nation with great people, and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. But that promise was not made to Abram because he was some sort of rock star, because he was some sort of celebrity, because he was some sort of person, famous person. In fact, it was made to Abram simply because God loved Abram. One of the great mysteries of the Bible, you you want a list of questions to ask God when you get there? Here's one. Why did you love Abram? Why? God tells us why. He said it was not because, not because, not because, and he gives a list of things why it's not because. He simply said, it is because I love you. The mystery of God is he gets to love whom he chooses. 
That's a very difficult thing to understand. The only thing comparable to it is romantic love here. This is a very minuscule example. I have three brothers. Along the way, we've all had various romantic interests. Invariably, one of my brothers would come home and he would announce a new girlfriend. And we'd size her up and we'd say, why? Who's that? Why her? To which my brother, and it didn't matter if it was the older or the younger, would invariably say, it's not a democracy. They wouldn't say it in this way. They would use very flowery language. But basically, I'm not interested in your opinion because it's not about you. Invariably, when those relationships would break up, you would say, ah, good riddance, man. I told you, she was not, she was not, she was not. To which my brother would say, yeah, but she was to me. Which is to say, why did God love Abram? Because Abram wasn't all that. But he did. So God sets out to make Abram a great people in the land of other people. Other people. He sent Abram to this land between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, a land inhabited by these people called Canaanites. They don't appear on the pages of Scripture until God identifies that land when he sends Abram there. And he says, I want you to go there and I want you to sojourn there. Interesting, Abram never had a house. Isaac, his son, never had a house. The Bible says they lived in tents all the days of their life. Never had a house because he was looking for a better country whose maker and builder is God. He wasn't interested in homesteading here. Abram's a strange dude. I mean, he's just peculiar. And he raised this band of merry men under him and around him who were just as peculiar as him. They actually believed God that God would make them a great land and a great people and so forth, and he would do it in the land of the Canaanites. But God has this thing going with the Canaanites that most people just it's not paying attention to the Bible. So I want to show you this. Turn to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18. Now this is uh, one of the most famous chapters uh, in the Old Testament for those people who hate God. Because this is the, the chapter, Leviticus 18, that restricts human sexuality. This is the chapter that prohibits every form of deviant sexual behavior, Leviticus 18. He said, well, where is that chapter that says you shouldn't do this? Leviticus 18. There's your chapter. All right? So I just want to show you this. We could start in verse 6. And we'd have to read all the way down to verse 30. We don't have time for that. So I'm just going to tell you that essentially in chapter 18, verse 6, he's going to prohibit things like incest, homosexuality, bestiality. He's going to list every kind of perversion. This is not the kind of chapter that shows up in children's Bibles. 
although it's in the Bible. But it is a nasty chapter. All right, I want you to see verse 19. Just read a little bit of it. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. You might say, well, who in the world is Molech? He's a Canaanite god. Remember, this is Leviticus. So he's talking through Moses to the people of God. You shall not offer your children to Molech. He's also an Egyptian god. And so profane the name of your God. I am, and this is the covenant name of God, I am Yahweh. I am God, the everlasting God. I am the I am. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Like I said, it's not a very happy chapter. That's not the end, though. Verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations that I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Now, what is that a reference to? Moses writes Leviticus in a foreshadowing way here, and he says, I am going to drive out people from the land that I am sending to you. And I want you to know they are culpable. They are guilty. How wrong are they before God? All you have to do is read Leviticus 18. They sacrifice their children to God's. They commit every kind of sexual perversion you can imagine. And I am going to drive them out before you, and you are going to move into their houses. This is in Leviticus. But he does it again in Deuteronomy. Again, chapter 18. You say, where is that chapter in Deuteronomy? It's the same chapter, 18. Leviticus and Deuteronomy 18. Two difficult chapters to read. Look at verse 9. Just one paragraph. Deuteronomy 18 is the second telling of the law. So Moses is near death. He is about to turn over the responsibility to Joshua. And so they're on the brink of walking into the promised land and he is reciting everything that he's already said. So Deuteronomy rehashes what he's already said in Numbers and Leviticus. So Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. Notice verse 9, you'll recognize the theme. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone, and here's the list, who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. If you give your children to some sort of fire, God is against you, friend. Anyone who practices divination 
or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. You're having seances and talking to dead people, which, by the way, is a real thing. God is against you, friend. Forever does these things as an abomination of the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you're about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So the Canaanites are culpable, and they are going to be judged by God, which brings us to the book of Judges. I invite you to turn there with me. And I want to show you just a couple of things as we work through chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 1 is the failure of God's people in their assignment. Chapter 1 is the failure of God's people in their assignment. Notice it begins, verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? We, 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 we lost a leader. Who's the new leader? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. So Judah is one of the 12 sons of Israel. By this time, Judah is a tribe. So there's an ancestral group. This is like four, five, six generations down the line. And, well, actually, far more than that. But, so there's a big crop of people, literally p- perhaps 100,000, 200,000 people. Uh, and there's this big clan, a tribe, and Judah is this people. And Judah is given the south. So as they come into Jericho, if you know anything about your geography, and by the way, if you don't know geography, you read the first three chapters of, Jer- of Judges and your eyes glaze over. And you say, mm, man, I don't know any of those towns. I don't want to know any of those towns. They don't know. I don't, it doesn't matter to me at all. So I'll try to help you with some of that. But, but you've got you've to lean into this one to understand what's really going on. But I'll tell you the, the thumbnail of it. The first tribe is going to be Judah. Judah is going to control about half of what today we would call the city of Jerusalem and south. And then Benjamin is going to be the second one. They're going to cover the other half of Jerusalem and north. But, it's a, but Benjamin is a very small tribe, so comparatively, Judah gets three times the land, maybe four times the land that Benjamin does. From there, he goes into the sons of Joseph, which is Ephraim, so forth. And he's going to move on from there, and he's going to go to the other tribes, and they're going to populate all, all across the north. And today, the region we would call Galilee, up to the north toward Lebanon, off to the Mediterranean, which is where the Philistines were and the Phoenicians, the so-called coastal plain along the Mediterranean. Today, the country of Gaza is there, the the West Bank all over there, Uh, all of that. All of these tribes begin to populate over there. They also populate across the Jordan. So if you're thinking, what's going on? Well, that's in the country of Jordan. Two and a half of the 12 tribes actually are given land across the Jordan. And uh, so they're, they're, they're coming in. So here, we need a leader. Who's the leader? He tells them, Judah, Judah. So he's going to work from south to north, south to north. And you're going to read these, 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 the geography, 
just makes sense if you think south to north and over to the Mediterranean. That's the way it's all going to work. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go up with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. So from the jump, Judah goes, but he says, I'm not going to go alone. I'm going to go with Simeon, my brother and his people. So one army becomes two armies, and they're going to go up against the, the Canaanites, and they, be, they have great success. Verse uh, 4, Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found uh, Adonai Bezek at Bezek. By the way, Adonai is the Hebrew word for God, or this is the God or Lord the Lord of Bezek. So what's, what's the king's name? Well, his name is the Lord at Bezek. So that could have been just a title like mayor, or Mr. Governor, or whatever. Uh, but nonetheless, he's the Lord of Bezek, Adonai Bezek. At Bezek, they fought against him, defeated the Canaanites in paradise. Uh, Adonai Bezek fled. They chased him, pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Again, this is another witness of the culpability of the Canaanites. They catch this guy and they cut off his thumbs and they cut off his toes, his big toes. Now what that means, of course, is that he can't walk, he can't fight, and therefore he's not a threat. It's also a classic case of ancient Canaanite humiliation. It's very obvious that a man's walking with a limp and that a man only has eight digits on his hands, not ten. It's a, there's no way to hide it. You humiliate this guy you conquered. You say, well, they, they, that's so cruel of the people of God that they would treat this man this way. Yeah, they treated the man the way he had treated 70 others in like fashion. They gave to him what he gave to others. In other words, he is plenty culpable. The notion that the Canaanites are a bunch of tragic figures and that this holy war that God unleashes upon them in the book of Judges is all wrong misses the greater point. God is working with his family, and many in his family have broken away to fight against their father, even as we do today. So, the end of the story is that verse 8, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, struck it, set the city on fire, and they he tells them where else they, he tells us where else they go. And so the balance of these first few chapters is the work of Judah. And he is productive. He's doing what he's assigned to do. Who will go up for us, they ask? Judah. Give it to Judah. And Judah goes out and he begins to conquer the lower part of what today we would call the city or the country of Israel. But that is not the end of the story. Look at verse 21, chapter 1. But the people of Benjamin, remember Benjamin is given about half of the ancient city of Jerusalem. So they share, Jerusalem is a border town. 
And the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, I'm going I'm to show you this in a minute, but I want to tell you in advance what you're going to see. Judah is for the most part quasi-successful at taking Joshua's command to go and conquer the land, and, and they are for the most part successful, at least in, in large part successful. And then he begins to go north. He's going to talk about Benjamin. He's going to talk about Manasseh and Ephraim and Zebulun. He's going to talk about all these other tribes, and you're going to find out not a one of them, not a one of them did anywhere near what Judah did, and Judah was not completely uh, effective. So Judah, let, let's give Judah a C minus and give that with the rest of them a complete F. So watch this, look at verse 27. Manasseh, one of the other brothers, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan. Ephraim, verse 29, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Akko is a city on the Mediterranean. You can go and visit the ruins of Akko today. Uh, verse 32, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites inhabitants of land, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, etc. Then verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. In other words, Dan is the biggest failure of them all. Dan's given this property, and they can't even occupy the property they were given. It wasn't that they that they came in and began to mingle with the Canaanites, the Canaanites ran them off. <clears throat> so what you have in the first chapter of the book of Judges is the failure of God's people in their assignment. Now, how does that apply to me and you? Well, you think about this. We're all in the same family. We're all part of this same history. God has given us jobs to do, gives tasks to do. He's given us lives to live. He's given us responsibility to bear. He's given us, <clears throat> if you will, a witness to offer to others. And I would ask you, how's that going? I would suggest that the history of the church, just in our little old country here, the United States, is we've had great seasons of success and great seasons of colossal failure. Part of my ambition in considering the book of Judges with you this season is because it is, it is unconscionable that, that we would be given to the same compromise as our ancestors. But we do. We find it so easy for us to say, yes, I want to go and I want to do these great things for God. And then in a minute, we're off to... making kingdoms for ourselves. We're often doing what seems right to us. We're so easily led into compromise. So chapter 1 is the failure of God's people in their assignment. And though the circumstances are totally different and the geography doesn't make any sense to us, I assure you, friend, the concept of failure the concept of sin, the concept of disobedience 
ought to be very familiar to you. Because it is the nature of our condition. We've been staked to this enormous grace and this enormous privilege with our God. And we find it so easy to simply just get caught up in compromise. Let us not be guilty of that. Hmm. That brings us to chapter 2 and verse 6. Joshua dies a second time. (laughs) Well, the story recounts the death of Joshua a second time. So you'll know, Joshua dismissed the people. The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. That's north of Israel. And all, rather of Jerusalem, all, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So Joshua and all of his kids and grandkids, the folks who knew Joshua, they are all dying. But there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now we've created a problem. We have a great man in Joshua. The only problem is he's going to die. And who's going to take up the mantle after him? Oh, I know, his kids will. And so they do. And the other men who are around Joshua, they'll carry it on. Next guy up. Get, on, get up here, let's, let's go. And they carry on. But eventually, those guys die. And their kids die. And then what happens? Think about it with church. Think about it in your family. Maybe there's a great patriarch, and he is the rock, and he is the hero, and he's the one everybody looks to, and he's the one that everybody says, that is a man of God, and he dies. Then what? Well, his son, his son, or his daughter, they they take up the mantle, except they're not the same stuff. They don't have the same commitments. They don't have the commitment to the mercy they don't have the commitment to the passion for god the personal piety they don't have the same devotion to the church they don't have the same devotion to the kingdom of god and all the many tentacles of the kingdom of god they don't give to charity for god they don't they don't do anything they become stingy and they it's just building their own little kingdom they they don't know how to handle money for god etc etc and just it's just a, a failure what happened the patriarch died if only he could have been here I say this all the time every time I walk into Walmart. I never knew Sam Walton except in my legendary mind. I'm thinking he's probably disappointed. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But you think about this. God has this great man in Joshua. But he's not living forever. And none of you are living forever either. We better be training somebody. We better be giving them more than just skills, head knowledge. We better be giving them our heart. And we better make sure that this heart that we're going to give them is worth giving. It better be that we're the first generation, not the second, third, and fourth generation in this story. We don't need to be the sons of Joshua. We need to be Joshua. We need to make sure that our kids and our grandkids know that what really matters here is this, not that, whatever that is. 
And if you give attention to that, you make much of that, then all you're going to do is compromise because it's all about this and this and this and this and this, and none of that is about God. We better make sure. We better go home today and start. Because if you don't, the book of Judges is your story in ways that you would not prefer. But what you find here is that God is full of mercy even in the midst of these stories. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. These are Canaanite fertility gods. They believed the Baals were in charge of water, you know, rain, because that makes the soil fertile. They're also uh, in charge of the fertility of, the, of a woman's womb and so forth. And these Baal gods, were, they, had, they had all kinds. That's why this is plural here. There are all kinds of Baal gods that have to do, and they all, but they all have to do with fertility, every one of them. Verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord. You know, you can't love two women. You can't serve two masters. And you can't worship two gods because the very definition of God is ultimate. He's ultimate. He's the only one. So they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. You remember why God told them, don't put up with the Canaanites. Kill them. Why is that? Because you will become like them. I know you will. So he tells them in Deuteronomy 7, he tells them in Deuteronomy 11, he tells them in Deuteronomy 29, don't put up with them. Kill them. Fight like you don't know what you're doing except fighting. Fight to eliminate that because if you don't, it will own you. Compromise will eat you up. That's exactly what happens. Verse 13, chapter 2, they abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Another Canaanite god, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to him. And they were in terrible distress. Listen, you say, well, that's, that's the end of it. You know, God's just going to push off and you're going to go find some new people. No. Isn't that the good news? That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of God. That's the good news here. Notice the very next verse, verse 17. Then the Lord raised up judges. Who's going to go for us? Judah. Who's going to go second? Benjamin. Who's going to go third? Manasseh and Ephraim. Who's going to go next? Asher, Gad. Zebulun, all these tribes, they're going to go and they're all going to be people of compromise. They're all going to fail to do their job and they're going to, they're going to bring the Lord's judgment, the Lord's discipline upon them. And the Lord is going to turn them over to plunderers and the people are going to suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer. But that's not the end of the story because it's never the end of the story. This is a very long book with a lot of little books and a lot of very small chapters. And one chapter includes me and you. So, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges. And they saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they didn't listen to the judges. 
say, well, they're going to listen. They're going to listen to these famous judges, you know, like Gideon. Gideon, he's just going to, he's going to come in and they're going to listen to Gideon. Well, they did until they didn't. Oh, they're going to listen to Samson. Well, they did until they didn't. Because you see, one generation is going to die. And another generation is going to take their place. And if we don't take care of business, friend, our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and the people of God will constantly be fighting against compromise. We can't be that and be pleasing to our God. So he raises up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they didn't listen, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. What's interesting in the book of Judges is the first judge we will meet next week in chapter 3. His name is Othniel. Othniel is the judge. Great story. You'll love the story. It's a wonderful story. Great application for our lives today. Othniel is the high water mark of all the judges. He's the best judge. And the reason is, not, well, he's, he, let me say that differently. He's, he's the judge who has the most success because after him is going to come Deborah and Barak and they have less success. And then after them is going to come other judges and, and eventually you're going to get all the way to Samson. And when you get to Samson at the bottom of the barrel, the bottom of this 200-year history of this period of the judges, the scripture is going to say that Israel has become just like the Canaanites. At the top, in the first judge, Othniel, they're more like God's intention than they're going to be. But at the end of this judge, we're going to drop down a notch. Pick up a new judge, drop down a notch. Pick up a new judge, drop down a notch. And by the time we get to Samson, they become like the Philistines, they become like the Canaanites, and they are fully compromised. In fact, let me tell you the end of the story. I told you the first introduction is mirrored by the last conclusion. Two introductions, two conclusions. The first introduction, Benjamin is the first compromise. Judah's going to take the land. They go in and they do it for the most part. And the next rattle out of the box is Benjamin. And what does Benjamin do? He doesn't do the job. He compromises. He doesn't eradicate Jerusalem. The Jebusites continue to live in Jerusalem. Benjamin is a, is a tribe of compromise in Gen, uh, Judges chapter 1. You get to the end of the book, the Bible is going to command Judah to destroy Benjamin. Because Benjamin has become fully immersed in the Canaanite life. And the only way to fix that is to cut it off. So the book of Judges is this steady decline. That's why this is not in children's books. This is why nobody wants a life verse out of Judges. 
But what it is, is the story of God's mercy, because even in this, God is preserving, God is working, God is going to secure a remnant. Even in this, this great dumpster fire of sorrow and heartache and rebellion against God, God is going to raise up these judges, and these, vo- these judges are a little bit of light in the midst of darkness. So the mercy of God comes through the judges, and we're going to see that again and again. A third thing we're going to see is that in spite of that, the people persist in disobedience. Let me conclude here, chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel, who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And these are the nations, and these are the threats that we're going to read about in the book of Judges. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as Lebo-Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded by their fathers, uh, their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So the end of it is that you would wish that after being in the company of righteous people, people who have the hand of the Lord upon them, people like Deborah and Barak or Othniel or Ehud, others that we're going to meet, these judges, the famous ones, Gideon, Samson, after being in the company of these people, you would say, how, how thick in the head do these people have to be? Can't they see it? Can't they see it? Can't they see it? Some of you are, are working with disobedient family members. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe, it, maybe it's a parent. Maybe, maybe it's a child. And you say, how can they not see this? How can they not understand this? How can they bury their head in the sand and pretend this is not real? Don't they see what they're bringing onto our family, what they're destroying? Don't they see in their rebellion against God and against the way of God? Don't they understand? You're frustrated to the max, perhaps, incredulous that these people would act this way. And in fact, they continue to act this way. No matter how, how difficult it is for you or I to understand, they continue to act this way. And, and what are we to do and what are we to think? And ultimately, our hope is the same as Israel in the book of Judges. We cry out to God because we need a Savior. We need a one who'll come and, and be our rescuer, who one who'll come and be our prophet, the one who'll come and, and, and take away all of our sin, take away all of our sorrow. We need something that this life cannot give us. Think about it for a minute. God used Abraham, but Abraham had flaws. I mean, he he tried to pass his wife off twice as his sister because he was afraid of dying at the hands of men who thought his wife was attractive. Abraham is not perfect. Isaac, my goodness, we don't have time to talk about the failures of Isaac. Jacob you can make much of the fact that Jacob, Jacob has this partiality toward Joseph, his, his 11th child, and then ultimately toward Benjamin, his 12th child. And, and these other brothers become jealous, and, there's, and, and Joseph, or rather, Jacob puts up with this jealousy among these brothers. He, he's, not, he's not a perfect father. He's not a perfect example for his children. Joseph, 
The Bible has very little bad to say, virtually none, about Joseph. But, but then they go silent. They go to Moses. 400 years later, Moses, is a, he's a murderer. He kills an Egyptian man who's warring against, fighting against a, 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 a Jewish man. He's a murderer. And then, of course, he's a, he's a, a guy who, when God calls him, if you've been a part of our Exodus study on Sunday nights, uh, Dr. Park made much of this a couple of weeks ago, uh, how G- God gave him every opportunity to say yes, and Moses keeps making excuses. I don't speak well. Well, of course he does, but he, he says he doesn't. Well, that's all right, I got it worked out. Well, I, I don't have any authority to throw that stick on the ground. Turns into a snake. Now pick it up. I'll be with you. You know, if you've got a snake that turns into a, I mean, a stick that turns into a snake, I like your chances. I'll be with you. Moses, ah, no, they're not. Moses is, he's not agreeable. He said, well, Moses turns out to be okay. Sure. Except when he's not. Then he hands it over to Joshua. Joshua doesn't finish the job. Then he handed it over to the people, Judah, Benjamin, the other tribes, and they failed. They did not. They did not. They did not. They did not. What's wrong with these people? The same thing that's wrong with me and you. How many times you recommitted your life? How many times you got down on your knees before a holy God and said, I am wrong. Please forgive me. I will not ever again. Only to get up and go and do it again. Or think it again. Or say it again. Or forget that moment. How many times have we failed our God? How many times have we passed on opportunities? How many times? More than we can say. So what's the fix? What's the solution? Well, the solution is to look to God, to trust in God. I want to return in conclusion to Deuteronomy 18. Turn back there, will you? We're going to land here. Deuteronomy 18. I stopped short a minute ago, but I'm going to return to this paragraph and read the first verse of the next paragraph. Moses said to the people, when you come into the land the Lord God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you're about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. And then the very next sentence, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, at Sinai, on the day of the assembly, when he said, 
Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command them. Now I want to stop right there and tell you that this is the antidote that God prescribes. He says, I'm going to send you into these people and you're not to become like them. But my hope is not in you. My hope is not in you keeping the commandments I've told you. My hope is not in you. The plan is not going to work if I'm depending upon you. The plan is not about you. It includes you. I need you to go in. I need you to dispossess those people. I need you to go in and kill those people like I told you to because you are going to be an agent of the Lord's justice against the Canaanites who throw their babies into fire and who conjure up seances with the dead. I want you to know that you're going to be a part of my tool, my instrument. But my hope is not in you. My hope is in a prophet who's coming. My hope is in someone who's not yet here. You say, well, who is that? Well, Peter tells us who it is in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, he heals a man who has been lame. And he's a beggar. And then he begins to preach. And this is Peter's sermon in Acts 3, in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come, upon, uh, come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And now he quotes Deuteronomy 18, 16. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, a prophet like me, Moses, from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Peter takes the story of Moses in Deuteronomy 18 which is the platform for Joshua and the people during the judges to go in and eradicate the Canaanites. He takes Moses' story in Deuteronomy 18, and he applies that a thousand plus years later to the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, God told us there's a prophet coming, and the only hope we have is not in you turkeys getting out there and killing all the Canaanites. That's not our hope. Ultimately, our hope is not in you because you will disobey. Our hope is in the prophet. The prophet who's going to come and be our redeemer, who's going to be our rescue. He's going to save us from Egypt. It's just a different kind of Egypt. He's going to save us from slavery. It's just a different kind of slavery. He's going to save us from a tyrant like Pharaoh, but it's just a different kind of tyrant. God is going to send a prophet like Moses, only not like Moses. He's going to be perfect. He's going to come and he's going to be the answer that we're looking for. What we need today is not to pull ourselves up by our bootstrap and just start killing people like Canaanites who are bad. That is not the will of God. Instead, the will of God is that we would look to the one who is greater than us, stronger than us, wiser than us, blameless before the, before the throne of God, 
He is our Savior. He's the only one who can rescue me and the only one who can rescue you. The book of Judges, God is going to send these judges as moments of mercy. The Philistines are against us. We're going to send Samson. The Ammonites are against us, and we're going to send another judge. Or the Perizzites are against us, and we're going to send another judge. These are these moments, these times of refreshing, but they are not the ultimate refreshment. Because what lasts for a decade doesn't compare to what lasts for an eternity. Friend, the great need of your life, and the book of Judges is going to show this again and again, the great need of your life is not to have your problems taken away or your physical enemy who stands in front of your face week after week after week after week be removed. That's not the problem. The bigger problem is we're not looking to the one who sent his only son as the prophet to take away our sin and to give us presence and power of God in our very bosoms. Think with me. What has God done for you? Huh. He's done amazing things, marvelous things. I trust today you look to Him, you hope in Him, you follow Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You that as we read the Bible, we see Your hand at work. We love You and we rejoice in You. And we know, Father, that even in the difficult, dark season known as the Judges, uh, you, you sent these judges as times of, of clarity, of times of, of deliverance from earthly circumstances. But the great, the great need of our hearts is not simply to have the, the battle stop, the war stop. The great need of our hearts is to have an answer for our sin. So, Lord, thank you that as we read the judges, as we study these men and women, uh, we, we would be helped and be reminded that our great deliverer is not a man named Gideon, a woman named Deborah. Our great deliverer is the Son of Almighty God. Make sure we know that today, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.